0: We are, as I mentioned last week, taking a two-week break from our study of the book of Acts. We are spending two weeks in Colossians chapter 3, so if you've got a Bible, I do encourage you to open it to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, We're spending two weeks in Colossians 3 really exploring our identity as Christians, our identity in Christ that, that has been given to us and uh, so this is kind of a two-week mini-series. We're getting back to Acts next week. And just as we start, I would just say, you know, we do hear a lot about identity in our day. And I think it's important for us to understand what the Bible uh, teaches us and has to say about our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ. Uh, last week, we left off in the middle of chapter 3. We're going to pick things up in verse 12 this morning. But I entitled this message simply, Our New Identity. Now, If we were doing a full-blown study of the book of Colossians, we would make our way through it in a systematic way, and we would see that the book of Colossians actually has a lot to teach us about our identity as Christians, Uh, and that begins right at the very beginning of the book. This letter, the, the book of Colossians, or the letter of Colossians, is addressed. Here's how Paul addresses the letter. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That's actually our identity, that we are as hard as it might be for you to believe, we are saints. Uh, We are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is who we are. And then throughout the book, we uh, we, uh, encounter a number of different metaphors that contrast our new identity with our old identity. So in chapter one, there's a relational metaphor. Here's what we read in chapter one. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So we were those who were hostile in mind towards God, but now we've been brought near to God in a close relationship with him. In chapter 2, Paul puts it in terms of life and death. He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together already with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we were dead but now we've been made alive. We were carrying a debt low that we could never pay, but now it has been paid in full. And then last week, we saw the metaphor change again. Here's what it says in chapter 3. In these, you two once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk from your mouth do not lie to one another to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator so we have an old self and we have a new self and the metaphor as we looked at last week is clothing right it is the putting off of our old clothes and it is the putting on of our new ones just as many of you did Over Christmas, when you got new clothes. So last week we focused on the putting off of the old clothes, burying the old way of doing things. This week's passage now focuses on the putting on of our new clothes. And here's what we read in in verses 12 to 17 of Colossians chapter 3. It's a new Bible and I had it open to the communion passage, so uh, here we go. It's a good thing it's not a sword drill. You all, you all have me beat. Here's what it says. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Through him. Well, it's quite a list, isn't it? These are the things that we are supposed to put on. These are the things that are supposed to be like the essential items in our wardrobe. Now, I will confess, I do not know a lot about women's fashion. Um, Maybe that doesn't come as a surprise. It, It probably shouldn't. The, the one thing I know is, uh, and you can correct me later if I'm wrong or email me or whatever, is that every woman is supposed to have like a little black dress, right? That you can wear to all sorts of different gatherings. I don't know what the male equivalent of that is. Probably jeans and a t-shirt. Um, I do remember when I was in college, I read, reading an article that said, you know, every guy should have as part of his wardrobe... Khaki pants and a navy blazer. That was like the thing you could wear to a formal event or to an informal event and not sort of stand out. Um, I, don't, I think that's changed now, but, the, but I think we know what this is. That there are sort of essential items, things that you have to have in your wardrobe to kind of make your way in this world. And as I, I think that's sort of the idea here in Colossians 3. There are some, some things that we must put on, must have as part of our wardrobe. So as we make our way through this passage, what I want to do is I want to simply highlight five things about our new identity. And the first one is that our new identity is given, not earned. The very first thing we need to understand about our new identity is that it has been given to us. So verse 12 starts out this way, put on then, As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So even before we find out what it is we're supposed to put on, we're told something about our identity. We are God's chosen ones. We are holy. We are beloved. So what is it that allows us to have this new identity? It is the fact that we have been chosen by God. It is the fact that we have been set apart by him or made holy by him. It is the fact that we are loved by him. And if we continue with the analogy of new clothes, this means that these clothes were not purchased by us. They were given to us. They were purchased by God and given to us or gifted to us. There's actually a great picture of this, what this looks like. In the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah recounts a vision that he had, and here's what he says. He says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed. With filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's really the gospel. This is actually what God has done for us. We stand before God in our old state, condemned in filthy rags before him, and he takes those from us and he provides us with new ones. He gives us an entirely new identity, not because we deserve it, but because he is gracious. Now, we know we haven't earned it because verse 12 tells us that we were chosen. Now, I know that can offend lots of people to to hear that, or lots of people will push back against that. Here's what I think we ought to understand when we read this in the New Testament, that we've been chosen by God like this. I like the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love, right? Spurgeon gives an honest assessment of himself, right? If it were up to him, he wouldn't have chosen God. God must have chosen him. God does look on his people with a special love. And the language that Paul uses in this verse is not accidental. Like Paul didn't just sort of come up with this out of thin air. Say, oh, you know, I were chosen and we're set apart or holy and we're loved. So where does this language come from? Well, it comes from the Old Testament and the way that God described the Israelites. We find lots of passages like this one in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's what God said there for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord said his love on you and chose you for you. You were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that, he, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, in the New Testament, that language, chosen, set apart, and loved, is applied to Christians all over the place. So Peter says it this way. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people, or now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is our identity, and we did nothing to deserve it. The starting point for us being able to live out our identity in Christ is to remember that we have been chosen by God, that we've been set apart by him, and that we are loved by him. And I would just say to you that when you start your day with that understanding, I've been chosen by God, I am loved by God, God has set me apart to be holy in this world. That will revolutionize The way that you live. So the first thing about our new identity is that it's given, not earned. The second truth about our new identity is that it must be applied by us. So verse 12 then tells us put on then, as God's chosen people, these virtues. And then he Paul lists a a long string of virtues and the idea behind that is that this is not a one time event the way that verb is could could easily be translated is keep putting on these things or put these things on Every day. So, just as we get dressed every day, so we need to clothe ourselves with these things every day. And these are not just our church clothes, these are not just the things that we wear on Sunday. You know, I'm going to put on kindness and humility and patience because it's Sunday morning after all. These are the things we're supposed to wear every day of our lives. And the putting on part is our part of the equation. Now, I think there's a tension there that's good for us to wrestle with. I mean, I've just said our new identity is given to us, not earned by us, but that doesn't mean that we don't have any responsibility in this. God has given us a new set of clothes. He's enabled us to live a new kind of life, but there is no point in having new clothes if you never wear them. Just, just think about how ridiculous that would be, and let me try to highlight that by using a different analogy than clothes, this, and this might only make sense to those of you who are over a certain age. Getting a new set of clothes and never using them would be like getting a new set of dishes and never using them. So like maybe these dishes, these hypothetical dishes, are dishes that you got for your wedding. And in fact, they're such nice dishes that you have to go out and you purchase a separate cabinet just for these dishes, right? You don't want them contaminated by the other dishes. You want there to be a glass window on this cabinet so you can display those dishes so others know you have them, but you never actually eat off of them. And lots of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? We got a set of dishes like that for our wedding. I think in 28 years, we've used them like five times. That's how lots of Christians live. God has given them a new identity, a new set of clothes, and they never make the effort to put them on. How much do you think you're going to grow if you never make any changes or if you never take any action? Older theologians used to speak of a two-pronged approach to growth in the Christian life. They described it as the mortification of the old nature and the vivification great word of the new nature now mortification is the act of putting to death right it's the it is the destroying or the getting rid of the putting off vivification is the act of enlivening or animating it is the putting on of the new self and the new garments and we need to understand we are active participants in this we don't just I think most of us at least don't sort of get up in the morning and wait for the butler to dress us, right? We do it ourselves. We put on the clothes and that's what we need to do here. And these two things always go together. We're never just told to stop doing something. We are always told or we're called to do something new. So we're never just told that we've been saved from something. We're always reminded that we've been saved for something. Last week we were told in verse 8, but now you must put them all away. All those former things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now we're told that we're, what it is we're supposed to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And you can see how all of the things we're now supposed to put on are really the antithesis of all of those things we were supposed to take off. And this is not an isolated command in the New Testament. This pattern is is everywhere. It's set in different ways. But there's a consistent theme related to our responsibility to take action. So 1 Timothy 6.12 urges us to fight the good fight. Luke 13.24 exhorts us to strive to enter by the narrow gate. 1 Corinthians 9.24-27 speaks of running a race and disciplining the body. Philippians 3, 12-14 talks about pressing on and straining forward. Peter says it this way. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with goodness and goodness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So progress in the Christian life is not made by sort of, you know, letting go and letting God, whatever that means. Progress in the Christian life is made by making every effort. Jerry Bridges said, said, said it this way. He said, No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life. But just as surely, No one will attain it without effort on his own part. That's how these things go together. One older theologian was asked to give his opinion on reasons why believers don't grow as much as they should. And his answer included theological reasons like doubting their conversion or presuming upon God's grace. But the main reason he cited was plain old laziness. See, a good theologian knows how to take the hay out of the loft, put it down on the barn floor where all the animals can eat it. The reason many of us don't grow is because of plain old laziness. We're not making every effort, we're not putting these things on. So, this is given to us, it's not earned. It is something we take part in. The third thing we learn about our new identity is that it is expressed in community. And we're going to see this as we look at the actual virtues that we're supposed to put on. But we saw it last week a little bit. We, we noted last week that the connection between all of the things we're supposed to put off, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from our mouths, and lying, wasn't just that those things were connected because they're all sort of sins we commit with our mouths, but also because they were all community-destroying sins. In the same way, every item of clothing that we are told to put on here, or every virtue we're told to put on, can only really be seen in the context of our relationships with other people. You can only have a compassionate heart towards someone else. And I think it's important to understand this. I mean, this kind of list is something that looks great on a... Christian calendar, right? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, peace, love, dove. Those things look great, but what does it actually mean to do those things? Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book entitled Life Together. It's a book about Christian community. And in that book, he makes the statement that anyone who cannot stand being in community should beware of being alone. His point is that there can often be a great discrepancy between who we think we are when we're alone and who we actually are when we relate to others. A more contemporary writer put it this way He said, When I'm all alone, I can convince myself that I'm quite a compassionate person. I can watch a commercial and feel very moved. Then when I'm with real human beings and realize I have to expend energy, sacrifice time, and be uncomfortable to practice compassion, it turns out I'm not nearly as compassionate as I thought I was. And this is why you can have a nice, quiet time at home or have a great you know, worship experience at church and then five minutes later be in your car yelling at other motorists. It's because it's actually in community where this stuff gets worked out. It's when you have to interact with other people. Now, I'm not going to go through every item that's on this list. We've talked a little bit about compassion. It says here that we're to clothe ourselves with compassionate hearts. Uh, This word was translated in the old King James Bible as bowels of mercy. The the idea is that our concern for others is something we actually feel at the gut level. We literally feel their pain. And so if compassion is sort of the gut level response that we have, the next item on the list, kindness, is the tangible response. Kindness means, well, we don't just say, hey, well, then be warm and well-fed. We do something in kindness to help meet that need humility and meekness are mentioned next, uh, next. and I, again i think these can often be misunderstood concepts i mean what is humility cs lewis put it this way he said true humility is not thinking less of yourself it is thinking of yourself less right that's the difference it's not sort of like you know we go around just think oh i'm such i'm so horrible all the time and Jesus is our example, right? Jesus didn't go around like that. He didn't go around you know, with his head kind of hung low. Humility was the fact that he put others' needs before his own, and that's what we're called to do in humility. Patience and forgiveness come next. That's always important in community, and I just want to park there for a couple of minutes. Verse, verse 13 says, Bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against one another or against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And I would just say that the surest way for us to know if we have understood what it means to have our sins forgiven is to see how well we do when it comes to forgiving others. You will probably remember the parable that Jesus told about this. He said, therefore... than we are ever asked to forgive someone else of. The ratio in the parable is 6,000 to 1. 10,000 talents was equivalent to 600,000 denarii. But the focus is not on the specific numbers, but the massive gap between those numbers. God has forgiven us of a debt that we could never repay. And yet sometimes we will hang on to relatively small offenses and make the person who's wronged us pay for that the rest of their lives. Now the reason I camped here for a few minutes is because I know that a lot of people carry around with them a burden of unforgiveness. They just can't let it go. Now you may have been hurt by a spouse, a family member, A former friend, maybe even someone in the church, and it's a wound that might have scarred you deeply. And there's—I have no doubt that you've been wronged in many times. But can any of us really say that we have more to forgive of someone else than God has already forgiven us of? So we're to put on forgiveness. Passage continues, verse 14 then says this, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love is the crowning virtue on this list. This is what holds everything together. Jesus said it would be our love for one another that would demonstrate that we are in fact his followers. So you can have a church that has great music, great teaching, great programs. If there is not great love, you don't have anything. Paul would say it this way. He would say, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So over all of these things, we're to put on love, which is the thing that ties it all together. And then verse 15 goes on to say this. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, in one body, and be thankful. So now we're moving from sort of the external of put these things on to the internal, right? What is it that rules in our hearts. Is it the peace of Christ? See, this verse really sums up what it means to say that our new identity is expressed in community. The peace of Christ doesn't refer to some sort of just vague inner peace that we might feel. It's actually in a relational context, The peace of Christ that is supposed to rule in our hearts is a relational peace. That's why it goes on to say, because we're members of one body. We have peace with one another, relationally. So that the the identity that we've been given, it's something that's expressed in community. A fourth truth about this identity is that it can only be sustained by God's Word. So verse 16 then says, Let the Word of Christ... Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the word of Christ is to have a central place in our lives as individuals and among us as God's people. It's supposed to dwell in us richly. It's supposed to take up residence within us so that it can do its work of transformation. Now, again, it's a new year. I, I know many of you would have started, you know, a Bible reading plan this year, a, a plan to read through the Bible, whether in its entirety or in some capacity, or maybe you've decided you want to do some scripture memory, that, that those are important things for us to do. We ought to read and we ought to meditate on God's word so that it can take up residence and do its work within us. But this is also something we don't just do in isolation. It's something we do together as the church. That's who Paul's speaking to here. And we can do this in, in informal ways and informal ways. Um, this last week, I attended a, someone's 50th birthday party. they a surprise party for them. And as I went, I was like, I don't know how many people I'll know here. And it turns out I knew very few of the people who were in attendance. And I'm not, like, I'm not big into you know, the small talk and all of that. But I, I managed to connect with, with one of the guys who was there. And as we talked, we, we found out we had a lot in common. Like we're around the same age. Uh, We both grew up in non-Christian homes. We both came to faith in our uh, later teenage years. Um, You know, we both had sort of struggles around that, family dynamics, all sorts of stuff that that we could kind of relate and talk to each other about. We both have kids that are about the same age. We both had uh, sons who played some college athletics. We just just found a lot, and we both are trying to figure out how to navigate the crazy world that we live in, and we just kind of encouraged each other uh, in that process. That's what that looks like. So we do it in informal ways. We also do it in formal ways. And as a church, we try to do that. We do that through things like community groups where we meet week in and week out, and we just talk about what the sermon was about, what the passage teaches us, and how we actually live that out, where I find my struggles, where you find your struggles. Here's where I get encouragement. We, we teach and admonish one another in those ways. That's what we're supposed to do. Those men's and women's Bible studies, they give that opportunity to teach and admonish one another in the faith. And even what we do here on Sunday mornings, that's part of the purpose of it. It, It's to let the word of Christ dwell in us or dwell among us richly. And it says specifically, this happens as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. Now, a lot of ink, if you read the commentaries, you'll find there's a lot of ink that gets spilled over how you should classify psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and what the differences are between those things. Psalms probably is a reference to the psalms that we find in the Old Testament. The psalms were Israel's prayer book, their song book, they would sing these songs. The hymns might be those songs that are more doctrinal in nature. They're the songs that teach us something, to teach us doctrine. We have those kinds of songs. We sing some of the creeds, we, even some of our Christmas songs. I was thinking about that this morning. You know, we sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, right? That's theology. We're getting that from our music. And the spiritual songs, they might be those songs that are a little bit more spontaneous. They're prompted by the Spirit. I'm not sure if we can just, you know, break it down exactly like that, but what's clear is that the songs are supposed to be biblical in their content. They're supposed to glorify God, and singing these songs together as a church is one of the ways we teach and admonish one another. This is why I think it's always good for us to evaluate the words that we sing. We don't just want to sing a bunch of emotional sort of Jesus is my boyfriend kind of songs. I, I felt I said this in the first and I, I feel kind of almost bad saying it, but I, I feel like I'm probably not a worship leader's favorite person to have in the congregation. And I say that only because whenever someone says, Let me introduce a new song, I'm like I will <laughs> I'll join in once I've had a chance to sort of see what the words say. I'm not just gonna sing it before I know what I'm I'm saying. Now Andy's careful about choosing the songs that we sing at Crossridge, so You know, you can jump in, don't stand there like this all the time. (laughs) But the music we sing is important. Uh, Warren Wiersbe once said this. He said, I am convinced that congregations learn more theology, good and bad, from the songs they sing than from the sermons they hear. Many sermons are doctrinally sound and contain a fair amount of biblical information, but they lack the necessary emotional content that gets hold of the listener's heart. Music, however, reaches the mind and the heart at the same time. It has the power to touch and move the emotions and for that reason can become a wonderful tool in the hands of the spirit or a terrible weapon in the hands of the enemy. I think he's right. That's why we want to pay attention to what we're singing. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God with thankfulness in our hearts. These are songs that are permeated by the word of God. So the final thing we can say about our new identity is that it it means, if we're to live this identity out, it means we can't compartmentalize life. And this comes from verse 17, where it says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, some of us are, are really good at compartmentalizing life. I think men, by their nature, are really good at compartmentalizing things. We sort of have, you know, this is my work life over here, and this is my home life over here. These are sort of my hobbies in this box, and, and this is my financial area of life over here. And we've got all these sort of separate things. And we've got spiritual activities in a separate compartment. Paul says we can't do that. What he says here is, whatever you do, whatever we do, in word or in deed, we are to do it in the name of Jesus. And that phrase, word or deed, is a spectrum phrase. It, 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 it is meant to cover the whole spectrum of all that we might do. All that we might do. This means that there is nothing that doesn't fit under that umbrella. Whatever you do, our new identity means that there is no part of our life that is held back, right? There's no part of our life that God doesn't rule over. We don't say, well, look, I'm going to give you a few hours on Sunday morning. Maybe I'll give a couple more during the week to go to community group or Bible study or to serve in some way. But you know what? This part of my life, I don't want any interference with this part of my life. Right? I don't want you interfering with my finances, with my sex life. We do everything in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's no part of our lives unaffected by our new identity. So let me just close by asking you, we're in a new year. Is there a part of your life that you are holding back? Is there an area where you're basically saying, look, I don't want you messing with this. You know, this relationship that needs to be reconciled. Yeah, no, I'll handle that on my own. This sin that I'm supposed to put to death. Well, I'll do that later. This thing that I think you're calling me to deal with. I'll I'll deal with that in my own sweet time. So let's commit ourselves to making this a year that we say together as a church, whatever we do, in word or in deed, we will do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's just pray to that end. And Father, we do want to thank you this morning that you have not only called us to a new life, but you have given us Everything we need for life and godliness. You have equipped us to live this new life by the Spirit. Uh, You have equipped us to do it by us being united with you, crucified with you, and now raised to new life with you. And we pray we would live out our new identity, that we would take active steps to put these things on, and that we could say that whatever we do, In word or deed, we're doing in the name of Jesus that we're giving thanks to you and bearing testimony to a watching world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.